Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. Anyone who wants to be president has to come through New Hampshire first, and no one covers New Hampshire politics like WMUR. I'm WMUR political director Adam Sexton, and we hope you can join us every week for this podcast. Our guest this evening is former Massachusetts Governor Bill Weld. Tonight we'll be getting to know Governor Weld and where he stands on key issues. At the start of our show, I'll be asking the candidates some questions, and then after a break we'll have our studio audience ask their questions in a town hall format. But before we begin with that, let's take a quick look at the candidate's biography. Bill Weld was born in Smithtown, New York in 1945, graduated from Harvard in 1966 before studying economics at University College Oxford. He later got his law degree from Harvard as well. Weld was a lawyer with a private practice in Boston before getting hired by the House Impeachment Committee to research the legal grounds for impeachment during the Watergate scandal. In 1981, President Reagan appointed Weld as the U.S. Attorney for the District of Massachusetts, and he later served as the Assistant U.S. Attorney General for the Criminal Division. Weld was elected Governor of Massachusetts in 1990 and re-elected in 1994. In 1996, he ran unsuccessfully as a Republican for the U.S. Senate against John Kerry and for Governor of New York in 2005, but he didn't earn that nomination. In 2016, Weld won the Libertarian Party's nomination for Vice President of the United States, appearing on that ticket with Gary Johnson. Weld and his wife live in Canton, Massachusetts. He has five children and three stepchildren. Governor Weld, thank you so much for joining us thank tonight you, on Always Conversation with the Candidate. And eight grandchildren. Okay, on my we, we should add that in there too. You face this question a lot, but it's an important one. As we just saw, you were the Libertarian nominee for vice president in 2016. Now you're exploring a run for president as a Republican. Why should GOP voters trust that your return to the Republican Party is genuine? Well, my, my uh, principles and uh, beliefs have never changed. I've been a Republican since I was uh, 18 years old. Uh, I had a couple years with the Libertarians. I've always been a Republican on the Liberty side uh, of the party, but uh, I've always self-identified as a member of the party of Lincoln. Uh, my first job was with a New York uh, U.S. Senator, uh, Jack Javits, uh, and those were the days. I mean, it was great to be a, a Republican uh, or a Democrat in Washington. People worked together, but I'm the same guy I always was, so there's uh, really no, no difference. So um, if you make this campaign official, you're going to have to make a choice between going for the White House or also taking on President Trump as well. And you've said already that in New Hampshire, there's a history of taking on the president and inflicting a mortal political wound, if you will. Is that part of what you're trying to do here, to no, damage the president no, politically? I've, I've thought for a long time that I could uh, start Monday in the White House. I've had uh, two terms as governor and a lot of other experience uh, in the Justice Department as well and studied the issues. I have a lot of international background, particularly the last 15 years in business and as a member of a group of former world leaders. So I feel qualified for the job. And I hate to say it, but uh, poor President Trump had no preparation for the job when he took office. And I tend to think it shows. But uh, by and large, I'm going to be talking about what I want to do. Has President Trump changed what it means to be a Republican? Oh, I think so. I mean, he's moved away from the idea of free trade and uh, leadership in the world community and uh, leadership of a group of allies. I mean, one of the quarrels I have with his uh, doings internationally is that he's seemed to have insulted our allies and uh, cozied up to uh, the autocrats who are pretty close to being our uh, enemies. Uh, and uh, that's no way to run a railroad. It's almost as though he's pursuing policies that are against the direct interest of the United States in, in the international arena. If you end up behind the Resolute Desk in January 2021, what is the first piece of legislation you want to sign? You know, it probably would be cutting spending and cutting taxes, but uh, an area I'm very interested in is the environmental area and natural resources and climate change and all that stuff. And uh, I, uh, I consider myself a, a real outdoorsman. I sometimes say the outdoors is my cathedral. And I think it's, it's easily possible to overlook the importance of clean air and clean water to this country. I mean, it's what we've really got. We've got the mountains and the valleys and the streams and the rivers, and we, we better darn well protect them because they are our monuments and cathedrals that they have uh, 
in Europe. And I, I, you know, when I was in the Justice Department, I brought the suit to clean up Boston Harbor. Uh, and it was the dirtiest harbor in the world, uh, other than Rotterdam, before we started. Now it's one of the cleanest and swimmable and fishable. That sort of thing is very important to me. And I think it should be to New Hampshire. You don't want all the snow off the White Mountains, but when the polar ice cap melts, that's going to happen unless we take steps. So would you rejoin the Paris Climate Accord? Absolutely, in a heartbeat. That would be near day one material. So would joining the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which President Trump thought during his campaign would be a failure because it would be dominated by China. He didn't even know that China wasn't going to be a member. And the whole argument for the Trans-Pacific Partnership was to have a beachhead with 12 other nations in Asia where China would not be dominant. Is there anyone serving in the Trump cabinet who you would consider keeping on if you somehow win? Yeah, I don't agree with those who say the entire administration is corrupt. I mean, I thought Jim Mattis was a complete star, and uh, there are a number of good people uh, in the administration. It's not you know, rotten to the core by, by any means, and, and they have a lot of good people. And I, you know, if I get there, I'm going to have Republicans and Democrats and a few libertarians and independents. Uh, when I was in the Justice Department and when I was governor, I tended not to ask people what party they were before I hired them. I just looked for the ability. That way there would be less work for me to do. If you do go forward with this campaign and you are unsuccessful, will you remain with the Republican Party and endorse and vote for President Trump for president? I think that's not likely. Really, uh, my differences with the president, uh, both domestically and internationally, are too, uh, too profound uh, for that. I'm not saying I'd go with the Democrat, but uh, I'd, I'd be very unlikely to endorse this president. Okay. Governor Weld, thank you for answering okay. these questions. Thank We're now going to face the really tough okay. ones from right. the town hall audience. Stay with us. We'll be back after the break. Hey, Facebook recently made some changes. Now you're missing out on lots of content from WMUR, but it's easy to stay connected. Go to WMUR's Facebook page, tap follow, then see first. That's it. Just two taps brings you back in the know. Welcome back to Conversation with the Candidate and our candidate, Massachusetts Governor Bill Weld. We have our New Hampshire Town Hall audience with us here. We're going to get to as many questions as we can. We're going to start with Christy St. Laurent. Hello. Um, good evening, Governor Weld. In the unusual setting of a primary challenge from within the incumbent's party, how do you anticipate keeping the discussion out of the, out of the schoolyard and focused on the issues? Well, I'm, I'm going to try to emphasize what I want to do uh, as, as President of the United States. And, and there's a lot on my mind. I mean, I, I think Washington does a very poor job of cutting spending. As a matter of fact, they don't do any job of cutting spending. Uh, and cutting taxes, both of which I did uh, as governor in Massachusetts. In fact, uh, right after I got in, I was uh, ranked the most fiscally conservative governor in the United States, and that was as a Republican in Massachusetts succeeding Michael Dukakis. So that took some doing. But I do think that's important, and they're off, including the president, they're off in the wrong direction on this trillion dollars of deficit a year. The president's most recent budget would add, admittedly a 10-year budget, but it would add 7.9 trillion more dollars to the deficit. The millennials, our children and grandchildren are gonna pay that bill. So that would be my first focus as president. Thank you, Christy. Our next question comes from Sam Kluger. Governor Weld, uh, my question is, what is your stance on the United States pulling out of the Paris Climate Agreement, and what steps will you take to ensure that my generation and my children's generation can enjoy their lives in an environmentally healthy environment? Well, I think the president pulling us out of the Paris Climate Accords was a disaster. Uh, and I would rejoin uh, on day one. I think we have to adopt uh, 2050 CO2 limitations uh, consonant with what other industrialized nations are doing. I don't think uh, that the industrialized North, to oversimplify, can say to the, uh, the unindustrialized, lesser developed South, we've already had the benefits of the Industrial Revolution. We're going to sit on what we've got, and now you've got to agree to limit all your CO2. You know, I think maybe there could be compensation for them agreeing to put rainforests uh, in the state uh, uh, situation where they are now, and something could be worked out. But we've got to show leadership there, uh, or else these white mountains aren't going to be white anymore because they're not going to have snow on them, and uh, the polar ice cap is going to melt, and all our, all our coastlines, including uh, the seacoast of New Hampshire, is going to be rearranged, and there's going to be a lot of shorefront property that's not shorefront now because it's 10 miles inland. Thank you. Thank you, Sam. Our next question comes from Elizabeth Radisich. Good evening. Thank you. 
While I share some of the values of the Republican Party, as the mom of two African-American children and as a woman, I don't feel like the Republican Party has an umbrella of inclusiveness. How would you change your party so as a moderate woman like me with a multiracial family could feel like the party actually wants my vote? Well, it wouldn't take any acting on my part, I'll, <laughs> I'll tell you that. Uh, and uh, uh, I shouldn't have to say this, but I will say this. Uh, I've never groped a woman anywhere, and I never will. <laughs> Honestly, and if 13 women came forward and all said that I had groped them, I'd be very unlikely to say, well, they're all lying, because it would seem vanishingly unlikely. Uh, you know, when I was in office, I was known for inclusiveness, and that includes uh, racial uh, as well as just trying to unleash everybody's energy. But I appointed uh, an African-American commission, Asian-American, uh, Hispanic-American. I met with them all uh, once a month, and uh, they felt included. Uh, it relates to another issue I care about, which is immigration. The president's rhetoric seems to be he wants to make everybody feel terrible. Any, anybody who's, uh, you know, not been a citizen here for 25 years. And I, I think the job of the president is to make everybody feel good about being an American. And I think it's bad for the whole country. Uh, and from a prudential point of view, by prudential I mean keeping, preserving social cohesion, if people live in the shadows. I mean, it's, it's one of the reasons why I was the first guy out of the block with gay and lesbian, uh, lesbian civil rights my first year in office. And I was, believe me, by myself for 20, 25 years there, because I think when people live in the shadows, that should not exist in a democracy. You know, that can exist under tyranny because that's part of what the tyrant wants. But um, I think on both uh, gender and racial grounds, you would find me probably about as friendly a uh, public administrator as you'd ever want to meet. Thank you. Thank you, Elizabeth. We now have a social media question coming from Daniel Schrock. He asks, Governor Wilt, what will change from being governor of the Commonwealth to being president of the United States, and what would you do differently? Well, I try to do sort of the same type of thing I did as governor. I, I put in place uh, policies that would un unleash everybody's energies, make everybody feel included. My cabinet uh, was eight, eight women and three men and always included minorities. I didn't want anyone to feel that they weren't part of the equation. Uh, and uh, so that's something I would want to bring to Washington where, guess what? It doesn't reside right now. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's not only the president, the, the situation of the D and the R parties, they sometimes seem to me uh, to exist mainly for the purpose of killing <laughs> the other party. You know, I made a great point of meeting with the Democratic legislature uh, leaders every week because uh, it's hard to, you know, stab somebody uh, in, in the back if you know you're going to see them over coffee and cookies sometime in the next seven days. And that was very successful. And they've kept that tradition to this day. Charlie Baker, who is a two-time cabinet member for me, who's now the governor of Massachusetts, uh, meets with the Democratic speaker and the Senate president every single week, and it's good for the people because you hammer out policies that nobody's screaming and, and kicking about because it's been through a process of analysis uh, by both parties across the aisle. So perhaps re-energizing the social relationships and networks in Washington. Yeah. Our next question comes from Rachel Spira. Welcome, Governor Wilk. Thank you. And your answer ties in with what I'm going to be asking. Okay. Um, as president, how would you, as our leader, work to break down the deep divisions that we currently have in our government, and especially on Capitol Hill? Well, that's that's right. Okay, and so my first job uh, in in government, I worked for uh, Senator Javits of New York, uh, who was a moderate Republican senator with many many Democratic friends, and this is in my early 20s, I was writing his speeches about Latin America, but the thing that sticks with me is that was a time when lions still roamed the earth in the Senate, and there were a lot of very well-known senators, and if one of them was going to give a major speech in the Senate, the Senate galleries would be filled with interns like myself and members of the press and uh, members of the public who wanted to hear the speech in real time to see whether they would be persuaded, and that's part of how policy was, uh, was hammered out, and those days are gone. If someone's giving a major speech now, it's given at three in the morning in a totally dark chamber, and the rules of C-SPAN don't let them stray from the face of the candidate. So no one knows the chamber is dark, and no one is there. And the reason is because the speech is not being given to persuade, it's being given for
for polemical reasons to stake out a position that that party can then use for fundraising. So, you know, my approach would be kind of the opposite of what they've had uh, in Washington for better than a decade now. I think the trend really started uh, in the 90s, but it's been going on for some time, and it's just no way to run a railroad. Unless your obsession, your only obsession, is with getting reelected, then it's a great way to run it. Thank you. Thank you, Rachel. I was president of U.S. term limits when I was governor, national president of U.S. term limits, so you can, you can guess where I am on uh, obsessed with being reelected, <laughs> as in not. Well, what would be appropriate term limits for the House, and would you approve them for the Senate as well? Oh, yeah, two terms for the Senate and either three or four terms for the House. Well, 12 years for the Senate and uh, six or eight for the House. Would you still have those lions of the Senate if they were limited to two terms? Yeah, I think so. I mean, uh, the truth is, if you can't get done what you want done in about six months, uh, you haven't been very effective. And that doesn't matter whether you're a senator or, or a president. Uh, you know, I always tell people who are running for office, if you don't have a short priority list, maybe you shouldn't be running for that office. And, you know, when I ran for governor of Massachusetts, I wanted to change the fiscal policy so we wouldn't be spending money like a bunch of uh, drunken sailors. I was coming right after uh, three terms of Governor Dukakis, who's a good friend, former law partner of mine, uh, but they really had gotten that government huge. It was 88,000 state employees at the height of uh, Governor Dukakis's run for the presidency in 1988, uh, and I cut that down to 62,000 in short order uh, after I got in there because it really wasn't, uh, wasn't necessary. Another reform question coming from social media. Uh, Pamela Bournes, oh, excuse me, Palma Bournes asks, what will you do to reform the welfare system? Well, I did a welfare reform in 1994 in Massachusetts, which became uh, the, uh, the, the model for the 1996 federal welfare reform. It was an example of the states being laboratories of uh, democracy. Uh, and what I did was uh, put in a work requirement, uh, assuming that people uh, didn't have any uh, preschool-aged children so that they were able to take work. Uh, and uh, it had been drawn to my attention earlier that that people uh, spend a lot of time looking for work and studying for work and thinking about work. But uh, in my view, there's no substitute for work. So if they said, I can't find a job, uh, we said as part of this uh, bill that I got passed, well, don't worry, we got plenty of jobs for you. Uh, there are schools and there are prisons and there's painting that needs to be done. There's uh, cleanup that needs to be done. We'll give you a job. 30 hours a week, you know, we're not gonna crush anybody. And if you got little kids you got to take care of, you're exempt. Well, the welfare rolls went like that uh, after that bill was passed because there were a lot of people who really didn't need to be in that situation. Of course, everyone called me, uh, uh, you know, they said I was grinding the face of the poor. Quite the contrary. I was preserving the system so that it could fulfill the function that it was designed for. And that was the model for the 1996 uh, Welfare Act as well. Our next question comes from Brody Deshaies. Nice to meet you, Governor Weld. Um, my question is about what are you going to do to reduce the federal government's debt, and how will you prevent large deficits? Well, I do what I did as governor in Massachusetts, uh, and that's to engage in what's called zero-based budgeting. And instead of doing what they do in Washington, which is to start every budget account with last year's number plus 5% or 10%, what you do is analyze what happened last year. And if there are a lot of good outcomes, like a preventive health program that kept a lot of people from getting sicker and saved a lot of taxpayers' health care dollars, you might multiply that appropriation by five or ten. But if there was an obscure, you know, sub-bureau of mines or something which had been there for 30 years with a guy, you know, doing crossword puzzles at his desk and it got five million dollars last year, as it always had in the past, you zero that out. And you can save a lot of money that way. And, and that... That was why the Wall Street Journal and the Cato Institute said that I was the most fiscally conservative governor in the country in my first term. Thank you, Brody. Next question comes from Sean Bentley. Good evening, Governor Weld. What, what do you think differentiates you the most when compared to President Trump? Well, I'm kind of a calm individual, <laughs> slow to anger, uh, and uh, I... Uh, enjoy life and enjoy making a contribution uh, to the public, uh, the public good. I, I think the president is kind of all over the place. A lot of it seems to be about the president and not about the people that he 
was elected to serve, and I know that's a psychological thing and a personal thing, not a policy difference, but I think it's the biggest difference. Thank you. Thank you, Sean. Next question comes from Aaron Meadow. Good evening, Good evening, Governor. The process of bringing new medicines to market goes through a multi-billion dollar approval process to get the drug to market, which in turn creates high drug prices. What would you do to address this? Well, high drug prices, uh, a couple things we could do is let people uh, buy uh, pharmaceuticals uh, across state lines and in other countries like Canada. That would be uh, somewhat of a help. Uh, and. Uh, you know, I, I do think that one of the geniuses of the American system is we do recognize that uh, the process of uh, development of pharmaceuticals is expensive and we allow companies to recoup those costs. But, uh, you know, there are variables here, like uh, how long is the period of patent protection before it goes to generic? It's now 17 years. Could there be, you know, movement around the edges uh, there? But having been governor of a state, uh, that has a huge biotech industry, partly as a result of incentives I put in uh, when I was governor. Uh, when I came in, we were losing biotech companies to uh, Illinois, to New Jersey, to Research Triangle and the Carolinas. By the end of my first term, I put in so, much, so many incentives for the biotech industry that if you were a biotech company and you did not have an office in Kendall Square, Cambridge, you were at a competitive disadvantage. And that was very good for uh, Massachusetts. So I'm, I'm not here to demonize uh, the pharmaceutical industry at all. I do think that particularly for the elderly, uh, the cost of pharmaceuticals, prescription drugs, has gotten totally out of hand. So that would be probably a high-level task force personally supervised by, you know, me or my top uh, Health and Human Service Secretary. And, and I have some sense of the trade-offs that are involved here and uh, the needs of industry, but the even more important uh, needs of uh, individuals not to get priced out of the market where they can get the pharmaceuticals that they need. Thank you so much. Thank you, Aaron. Our next question comes from Spencer Diaz. Good evening, Governor Weld. How would you handle the crisis in Venezuela and how would you apply this to all foreign crises? Well, I think the crisis in Venezuela has been handled pretty well. Uh, I thought it took some nerve to recognize Guaido as, uh, as the head of uh, the country when Maduro was still there. Maduro seems to be the first uh, foreign dictator that President Trump has, has met that he doesn't really like. Uh, you know, he, he's a great admirer of Putin and uh, Kim in North Korea and uh, Viktor Orban, not yet a dictator, but wants to take Hungary out of the uh, Western orbit into the Soviet uh, sphere of influence. Uh, Duterte in the Philippines who personally kills people with guns, uh, personally kills them, uh, suspected of uh, dealing in, in narcotics. Uh, so this is a refreshing, uh, refreshing change. I was down in uh, uh, Colombia a couple of weeks ago and uh, met uh, one night for dinner with uh, former President Juan Manuel Santos who got the peace prize for you know, getting the Colombian rebels to come to the table. And the next, uh, next day met with, uh, for dinner with President Duque, who's the new uh, president of Colombia, for, uh, 42 years old. And the Colombians, of course, are very interested in what goes on next door in Venezuela. As a matter of fact, it was Colombians taking uh, humanitarian aid across the border that uh, Maduro said, oh no, we're not gonna accept this, you know, throw that in the river, reject it, because he didn't want to admit that, uh, uh, that he needed uh, help for his, his people. The situation is a little complicated by the presence of uh, Cubans, senior military officers, and they're kind of, my sense is, and my briefings are, that they're kind of telling the Venezuelans how to handle things. And uh, China and Russia both are uh, exercise a good bit of influence over Venezuela. So I think you gotta deal with China and Russia I'd go to them first and then Cuba to try to get something uh, worked out that would uh, uh, create pressure on Maduro simply to withdraw. Thank you, Spencer. We have a, another social media question here, this one coming from Facebook and Erica DeRoches. Will you release your tax returns? Yes, I plan actually at some point not too deep into the uh, campaign to release five or six years of tax returns just to uh, put the question squarely to Mr. Trump. And one more question here. Uh, we've seen other Massachusetts politicians run for president on both sides of the aisle, from Dukakis to Kerry to Romney. And it hasn't worked out too well at the national level. Do you know why that is? Worked out okay for Jack Kennedy. Oh, well, it was a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I think those are, those are good 
candidates. Uh, you know, I was with Mitt Romney all the way in both 2008 and 2012, and uh, I thought he was, uh, he was a good, strong candidate. He just uh, ran up against a juggernaut in, uh, in the Obama administration. Uh, he did a little bit uh, better than, than uh, 2008, uh, but only one state, I think only Virginia. So that was, uh, that was a, not, a, not a great year to run as a Republican. A lot depends on, you know, what year you're running and what party you're in. And uh, in 1994, uh, when I ran for re-election, it was a fabulous year to run as a Republican. I'd been elected with 50.01% of the vote in 1990, and in 1994, we got 71% of the vote. That wasn't because I had improved as governor. It's because it was a great year to run and we had a record to run on. Do you know Gomer's gollies? Golly! 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 Sergeant, I just can't get over it. Get to know Gomer's gollies on Gomer Pile. Sponsored by Heritage Plumbing, Heating, Cooling, Electric. We have 30 minutes commercial free here. We're going to get to as many questions as we possibly can. And we're going to start with Brennan Robinson. Hi, Governor Wild. Evening. I actually voted for you in 2016. Excellent. I'm glad that you're on the top of the ticket now. Great. Um, my question was, how will you bring dignity, honesty, transparency, um, and all that jazz back to the White House? It seems like there's been a bit of that lacking lately. No, I, I would agree with that. I think that... Uh, Kindness and decency are, are the elements that I find most tragically uh, missing in this administration. Uh, and, the, you know, the touchstone going in was, was let's make everyone feel terrible about immigrants uh, and essentially make everyone hate people from other countries and, and other religions. And uh, that's the opposite of my view, which is we want to be inclusive uh, of everybody. I think you've got to lead by example and uh, act with dignity and uh, not, uh, not to put too fine a point on it, but uh, not act uh, inappropriately towards women uh, throughout your life. I mean, uh, the, the guy who's now in there, it may not be entirely his fault. He really didn't have preparation to be president. He was basically, uh, you know, a wealthy socialite uh, from New York and, and Palm Beach uh, whose job was to judge beauty contests. Now, a man who puts himself forth as his profession being a judge of beauty contests, I know what kind of man that is. And it's not someone who's thinking about how to act with dignity uh, and respect and restraint uh, all the time. So in addition to setting a, a role model, as I think almost all of our presidents have done to maintain the dignity of the office, I think your philosophy of government can show that you care about everybody, uh, that you don't want anyone to be left behind. Uh, and my view of democracy is that its essence is that the individual shall never be thrust in a corner. And that's why I ran on the ticket I did uh, three years ago, the emphasis on the rights of the individual as opposed to government. I'm a small, small government guy. Uh, but I think if you keep that in mind, uh, it means you don't want people to be, you know, fearing the police siren and living in the shadows. Those are the two worst things that can happen in a democracy. Well, thank you. Thank you, Brennan. Our next question comes from Joan Krimlisk. Hello, Governor Well. Yes, ma'am. Um, what can be done to be more secure at ports for people, drivers, and cargo crossing borders? At, at ports of entry? Yeah, so airports, land ports, and seaports. Well, you know, I presided over uh, uh, Logan Airport and the Mass Port Authority. We were one of the airports uh, targeted by Osama bin Laden. So don't think we didn't put in maximum uh, security uh, measures. Uh, you know, my, my, uh, one of my daughters uh, worked for Ray Kelly, the New York Police Commissioner in the counterterrorism squad. So I'm familiar with what he did in New York. And Ray Kelly had as many people on that job as the FBI. He had 2,000 people uh, on, on the counterterrorism front. And he kept New York City uh, safe and New York, of course, had been the magnet uh, first in 1993 with the failed attempt at the World Trade Center and then with the successful attempt in 2001 with the hijacked uh, uh, airplanes. So I think he did uh, uh, he did an exemplary job of keeping everybody safe against against a lot of odds. Uh, the first uh, Homeland Security Secretary, who I overlapped with his governor, Tom Ridge of Pennsylvania. You know, absolutely nothing happened on his watch. Michael Chertoff after him, same thing. 
So I would go talk to those two folks right away and say, tell me everything you did. But I'm in discussion now with uh, intelligence and national security officials in, uh, in Washington who want to make sure that uh, all the candidates are briefed on those issues so that the president doesn't have the only window uh, on those issues. And I'm listening carefully to them as well. Quick follow-up question there. Uh, would torture be on the table in terms of counterterror as a policy? No, no, it wouldn't. I never understood why we didn't join the Convention Against Torture. The, the United States has refused to join that treaty. And when I was in the criminal division, I never understood why. And people would explain to me, and it just sounded like gobbledygook to me. It was something about our national sovereignty. Our national sovereignty does not extend to torturing people. Our next question comes from Clara Monier. Yes. Good evening, Governor. Uh, there have been a number of articles about Social Security running into problems by 2035. Have you thought about solutions and what are they? Yeah, no, I've thought a lot about that and that's where the debt issue comes in. I mean, I fear that unless we address the deficit uh, that Social Security is going to be under enormous pressure. You know, the polls that have been done of millennials show that by and large they don't think that they're going to receive Social Security when they reach uh, that age. Uh, and unless we address the deficit, uh, they're probably right about that. Uh, you know, around the edges, uh, retirement uh, age, uh, means testing. I'm not sure any of those uh, suggestions really is going to shore up the system. So uh, another suggestion is having people uh, who, who have a lot of money contribute more into the system. Now, that might be worth some merit, but I would, I would look at all those. Uh, but I think the bottom line issue is reckless spending in Washington. Thank you, Claire. Governor, if you don't mind, what are some other entitlement reform ideas that you have that you could put into place that you feel would attack the deficit and the national debt? Well, again, I like more emphasis on the individual. So I'd, I'd like individuals to be able to have, as they already do to an extent, uh, individual retirement accounts. And so you have a, you know, an IRA, a Keogh, a Roth, plan, but I'd, I'd allow people to save as much uh, in a tax-advantaged manner, meaning tax-free when you take it out, uh, as possible so they can plan for themselves what, what they think their own needs in retirement uh, are going to be. In the health area, I think people should be able to have health savings accounts that they can sock money away into in a tax-free measure, because not everybody wants a Cadillac. Uh, one minor cavil I have with the uh, Affordable Care Act is it kind of says one size fits all and we want every we want to mandate that everybody gets coverage for everything so everybody gets a Cadillac. Well, it's nice if everybody can have a Cadillac, but uh, it's also expensive. And, uh, you know, maybe not everyone wants a Cadillac. Uh, I always buy insurance with high deductibles because I don't want to be covered down to the ground because I know it'll be cheaper if I have a high deductible. Other people might feel the same way. So I would, I would uh, experiment with health savings accounts uh, to put the most powerful uh, tools in the hands of the individual who can make their own decisions about what they wanted. And that's a, that's a root and branch approach to entitlements, because entitlements by definition is the government saying, this is the way it's going to be for everybody. And I'm not so sure about those one-size-fits-all uh, solutions. What about people who can't afford to save? Well, uh, you make adjustments for that. I'm, I'm you know, I, uh, I think all the time about uh, families living right at the poverty level who are, who are, you know, stretching, stretching, and they can't quit their job because then they lose their benefits, but, uh, you know, they can't... Um, the marginal dollar, uh, they can't spend it on uh, something that's a luxury because it's going for food for their kids. And uh, if we don't uh, make steps for them to be able to have the jobs of the future, uh, the replacement jobs that uh, kick in after artificial intelligence and robotics and drones and uh, self-driving vehicles have robbed us of a lot of the existing jobs, uh, if we don't do that, then uh, the door to the middle class is going to be slammed in the face of the working poor, and those are people I think about all the time. And in designing a jobs program for the United States, which is something that would be very high in my agenda, the best social program anybody ever invented is a job, because again, that's, that's putting power in the hands of the individual, making the individual self-reliant and able to care for his or her family. Uh, I, I would be concentrating on those people who were uh, working hard, but you know can't, uh, can't make it uh, without 
a little bit of a boost. When I was in office in Massachusetts, uh, I worked several times on greatly increasing the earned income tax credit, uh, which is, it's not quite a negative income tax, but it puts money in the pockets of people who are working hard and just can't quite make it for themselves and their children. We have a Facebook question coming in from Lauren Selig. Uh, it's about gun control. She asks, uh, to quote my eighth grader, quote, should the people deciding my future choose you to be our president? What will you do to help make sure I am not gunned down before I graduate high school? The mother asks, as her mother, I'd like to know what you plan to do, not only to address gun violence, but also mental health issues. Yeah, well, they're not unrelated. Uh, and I think the bottom line is we have to keep weapons of all kinds. There are no weapons that aren't dangerous, almost by definition. So you've got to keep all weapons out of the hands of people who are dangerous. And, uh, you know, take Sandy Hook, the worst of them all in my book. Uh, that uh, totally was caused because someone wanted to put uh, guns, weapons in the hands of somebody who was clearly mental un uh, unstable to improve his self-confidence. What a tragedy. Uh, you know, and uh, those schoolrooms with not a sound coming after, uh, out of them after the first six minutes. I can't get that one out of my head. So uh, I'd be prepared to be quite aggressive in terms of keeping all guns, not just, you know, guns that scare people because they got a tripod, all guns out of the hands of people who have mental health issues or, or instability issues. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, I don't think you get anywhere by saying, you know, there's 300 million rifles uh, out in the United States now in private ownership, all legally acquired. Uh, we're going we're gonna to outlaw the ones that we don't like the look of. You know, that would, uh, again, that would not be good in terms of the relationship between uh, the government and the citizens. And actually, and this will be controversial, but if you look through history, when regimes have absolutely taken guns away from everybody, uh, it's often uh, a prelude to genocide. Uh, Hitler did it, made it almost impossible for Jews to own weapons. Boom. Uh, the Jews have no defense when, when the, uh, Hitler comes for them. Uh, Stalin in Russia, even worse, even more people slaughtered. But it's not just the two big ones. Idi Amin in Uganda outlawed firearms and, and promptly slaughtered all his political opponents. So, you know, I've come, uh, I, I used to think about guns because I've been a lifelong hunter as something that we need to protect for hunting. It's not hunting, it's self-defense. And it may sound crazy in the United States because we've had this glorious tradition and we're all so safe and we have a super society and we're first world. It's not so fanciful, I don't think, if you look at history. So that's on the other side. Our next question comes from Dan Bergeron. Governor, another big important question for you. Do you support school choice? <laughs> well, that's kind of an easy one. Mm -hmm. I made my career supporting uh, school choice and uh, charter schools. And the only time I testified on a bill in the Massachusetts legislature where the crowd was behind me was uh, on school choice and charter schools. And uh, I was talking to the heads of the education committee in the legislature who were strongly supported by the teachers union, who of course didn't want uh, any of that. Uh, and I said, well, this is my position. And they were nervous. And the reason they were nervous is because there were 300 people sitting behind me and there was not a white face in the room. It was all black parents who knew that their kids were trapped in failing inner city schools and they didn't have any choice. So that's been my mantra uh, right along. Uh, we did, um, uh, in 1993, enact a major education reform bill in Massachusetts. And I, put, I made kind of a grand bargain with the Democrats in the legislature. I said, uh, uh, I'm willing to put $7 billion more into K through 12 education if you'll give me some management give back so we'll have high stakes tests in fourth, eighth, and 10th grade. So we'll get some accountability into the system. No more social promotions. No more saying you get to the end of the year, you automatically go to the next grade. Well, that's what the teachers union wanted because they wouldn't have any trouble then. And someone finishes 12 years in school, they, you know, they go on to college, even if they're totally unprepared for it. So Massachusetts have been a little bit below the middle of the pack until then. After that reform, Massachusetts was number one in reading and mathematics on standardized tests every year for the next 25 years up until this year. So I'm pretty sure that's the way to go in, in education. And I think a lot of what U.S. Department of Education does is a interference with uh, parental and local control. Well, thank you for your perspective. Thank you, Dan. And following up on the Department of Education, you hear a lot of Republicans talk about abolishing that department. Is that something that you would consider if you're yes, the president? Yes, it most certainly is. 
I mean, they do some things that would have to be replaced. They educate uh, Americans abroad, and, uh, but, but I'd, I'd want to cherry pick what they absolutely have to do and preserve that and maybe have it be done by a renamed uh, department. But I think we need, and I'm kind of way conservative on education. I think we need school choice. I think we need charter schools. I think we need homeschooling. Uh, we need less federal interference. Uh, I'm a big Tenth Amendment man. The Tenth Amendment to the Constitution says that the powers not delegated to the federal government are reserved to the states, respectively, or to the people. Uh, and I think of education as something where you really do want the, the local authorities and, and, and the parents to have a, a bigger say in it than they do if, if the rules are coming down from Washington. So I'd, I'd take a good look at that U.S. Department of Education. It was created uh, when Jimmy Carter w uh, made a deal with the National Education Association at the 1976 uh, uh, nominating convention. And he said, you're going to have this department. And something like two-thirds of the delegates to the convention were members of the NEA or the other national teachers' organizations. So uh, that, that's how it was born. And uh, I don't think it's lived up to its promise. So to what extent should the government ensure the quality uh, of the charter schools or the uh, independent schools that are outside it of the public schools? It should ensure system? the quality. And one thing that we made a point of in Massachusetts, even though we were wildly in favor of charter schools to introduce creativity into the, uh, into the school, the education process at K through 12, uh, I, I always made it a point of, of saying that charter schools have to have freedom to fail. They can't have an invisible government safety net uh, underneath them. And, uh, you know, five or six of them, even in my time, uh, did fail because they didn't get the job done. Uh, and, you know, that's part, of, uh, that's part of the Education Reform Act, is if there are, if there are schools which are failing, uh, they, uh, the bottom 10% of schools get kind of warning letters in Massachusetts. And if they don't uh, shape up, then, uh, you know, the, the ultimate remedy is to place them into receivership. And nobody wants that. But we create, it created incentives to put pressure on the principals. And the principal is the key actor uh, in a school, uh, school situation to, uh, to deliver quality or else. That's what I mean by accountability. And Massachusetts has profited uh, by that in the last 25 years. Uh, another social media question, this one coming from Facebook. Julie Sims asks, what is your stance on abortion? I've always been pro-choice. Uh, half my voters in Massachusetts have been pro-choice and half have been pro-life. I never rub anybody's nose in that. Uh, again, just as, uh, uh, except for, you know, Planned Parenthood folks who supported me, I, I never knew whether members of my cabinet or people working with me were pro-choice or pro-life. I do see both sides of that issue. My wife and I had that issue come up uh, once where uh, one of our kids, it was not a problem pregnancy, but there was an issue creating risk. Uh, and there was some suggestion from uh, uh, the, the doctors and the uh, medical people handling the case that maybe we should consider uh, terminating the pregnancy. And we said, are you kidding? Uh, and the reason for that is that we, we didn't want them making that decision. We wanted to make that decision. And that's the basis for my uh, long-time held uh, uh, pro-choice position. I, I don't want uh, a bunch of uh, big, fat, white guys in Congress making a decision as to what, what a woman's going to do with her body. Our next question comes from Becca Budrock. Hi, Governor Will. Thank you for being in New Hampshire today. Thank you. I enjoy it. Uh, I'm an environmental science student, so you can imagine that environmental issues are really near and dear to my heart. So my question for you today is, what are your plans to increase the availability of local food across the country? Local? Local food. Oh, oh local food as mm -hmm. in uh, vegetables and, yeah, no, I think that's great. I mean, I'm a pluralist. I believe in variety. Uh, I, uh, I may be on the wrong side of the GMO issue for you. Uh, I think GMO is okay because it creates... Uh, uh, a lot more food to be distributed to populations, uh, mainly around the world, not in the United States, that, uh, that need it. Uh, but uh, as you probably know, the, the capital of uh, hydroponic vegetables is in The Hague in, in Holland, and we import their measures, just as in animal husbandry, the United States is the capital, uh, head, headquartered in the state of Texas. Uh, but uh, I do think that hydro, uh, hydroponic methods of growing uh, vegetables and other vegetation could be employed more in the United States than, than they are now. That the, the technology is centered uh, in, in Western Europe and we should bring more of that in. Uh, but 
you know, I, I spend a lot of time in the country, upstate New York, up here, and always patronize the, the local, uh, local food outlets. Thank you, Becca. Thank you. I, I, also, I would say one other thing. I think that, uh, you know, I've spent a lot of time focusing on uh, the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act, which were uh, passed within my lifetime in the early 70s and uh, brought the suit to, to clean up Boston Harbor in the 80s. Uh, so I've had a longstanding interest here. And, and the Rivers Protection Act in Massachusetts as well. So a lot of this reduces to water. Uh, and if you don't uh, protect uh, the water supplies and the water table, then you get big issues down the line with food as well. So that's a high priority of mine. Thank you. Thank you, Becca. And following on that, uh, it's not exactly the headline department uh, in the cabinet, but what would change at the Department of Agriculture in a Weld administration? Oh, you know, I, I, I hadn't thought a great deal about uh, about that. There's certainly a lot of subsidy there that uh, yeah. between uh, corn and Iowa and, and whatnot, and certainly we see a lot with the tariffs going on. I probably would be enough of a uh, uh, enough of a conservative to take a good look at uh, all those uh, subsidies, but it's not an area that I've uh, become uh, expert in. I think by and large uh, the department does a pretty good job. Some people who are controversial, uh, Earl Butts comes to mind, uh, was, a, was a damn good Secretary of Agriculture, so it, ha uh, it helps to come from, the, from that area, that neck of the woods, and know, know the issues cold. Okay, uh, another social media question, this one coming from John Ferrant. He asks, what is your plan to combat the opioid crisis? Well, that's a tough one. I've buried uh, two young men in the last couple of years, 20 years of age and 21 years of age. One of them was my godson. Uh, and, uh, you know, in, when I was in the Justice Department for seven years, uh, did a lot in enforcement. Obviously, what's going on now is that uh, fentanyl and other contaminants are getting into uh, the opioids, among other things. Uh, and uh, my successor as governor, Charlie Baker, who's the current governor of Massachusetts and was my Secretary of Finance and my Secretary of Health and Human Services, has developed a comprehensive uh, program to combat uh, opioid abuse. And he brought in the doctors in the healthcare industry and said, look, uh, we're going to have to uh, put the wood to you. And docs, you just can't, you can't prescribe as much as you want uh, because, you know, just because it goes into your pocket. And we've got to have these rules. Uh, and he had all the stakeholders in the table. And I think most people think that uh, his program that he worked out uh, should be, like my welfare program, a model uh, for the national government. So the first place I would go is Charlie Baker and Karen Polito, who's the lieutenant governor there, and uh, just steep myself uh, in, in what, they've, uh, what they've developed. With your criminal justice background, uh, so much of what we see now in the opioid crisis is this shift to treating it as a public health problem. Where do you draw the line between criminal behavior and, and what is uh, essentially the act of someone who is uh, addicted and uh, stuck in that well, addiction? Well, as part of criminal justice reform, which is currently under consideration and partly was passed, the first step legislation that passed in Congress uh, recently, uh, I, I think we should be moving in the direction of classifying more things as a national public health emergency and less as a criminal justice priority. Uh, and that would uh, apply to addiction as well. And uh, in the area of narcotics enforcement, uh, for example, I've uh, uh, you know, spend some time with the organization called Facing Addiction. And uh, I, I do think that uh, addiction of all kinds, whether it's alcohol or narcotics, uh, it's a public health emergency. Uh, and yet, uh, many times, particularly with narcotics uh, addiction, the first reaction of law enforcement has been, here's a law enforcement priority. I'm not sure that isn't penny-wise and pound-foolish. I'm not sure that that's a condition that's entirely uh, voluntary. So I, I'd be on the side of treating more of those things as uh, national um, uh, health uh, emergencies. In, in the area of uh, narcotics enforcement, I've gotten more familiar recently with the cannabis industry and marijuana, and I can tell you uh, that there's a huge uh, social justice issue there uh, in that uh, if you're black and not white, you're four times as likely to get arrested for cannabis possession, not dealing, but possession. Uh, as if you're white. And you're four times as likely to get a jail sentence than if you're white. And the jail sentence is likely to be four times as long as if you're white. So that's, you're behind the cheap seats by a factor of 64 
that's really too big uh, a disparity to be based on race alone. So I, got, I think we've got some rethinking to do in this area. This may be diving pretty deep into the memory banks, but can you think of anyone you prosecuted in the 1980s that falls under uh, that sort of umbrella of uh, a drug offender only that perhaps was, uh, the book was thrown at them and it may not have been just looking yeah, back? Not, not by name, but, uh, and I did try to steer DEA, DEA, Drug Enforcement Administration, away from the two-ounce by-bust cases where they could catch somebody in the street, get credit for a statistic, and in favor of uh, the big rings. Uh, and, uh, you know, I told all my assistant U.S. attorneys, uh, we should develop cases, not that the DA could do, because we were federal, but we had many more tools at our disposal, including the investigative agencies and a broader jurisdiction, mail fraud, wire fraud, uh, firearms uh, jurisdiction. Uh, so we should bring cases that would be brought if we weren't here. So it shouldn't be the guy on the street with two ounces of coke. It should be the mastermind who's not even in the United States. But we have worldwide venue and jurisdiction, so we didn't have to worry about that. A DA would get stopped at the state line. Uh, so we tried to focus, I tried to focus our people on the great big cases, but there were still some by-bust cases prosecuted. And uh, I'm sure if I had the opportunity to go back and revisit the Pross memos on all of those, I might say, not worth our trouble. You know, sometimes you're bringing a case to keep peace with the investigative agency, but uh, maybe that rule could have been drawn a little bit more brightly. Another social media question, this one coming from Dennis Shea Jr. Will you deport all illegal aliens in the country and prosecute any government official aiding them? Deport all illegal aliens? Well, no, I'm not sure I would. Uh, you know, a lot of the, the undocumented aliens that are now in the country just overstayed their work visas. Uh, I happen to think we need more work visas in this country, a uh, lot less, for a couple of reasons. If you ask any state governor, Texas or West, whether uh, the agriculture and construction industries in the western part of the United States could be fully taken care of without the in-migration from the south through the Mexican border, and that would be Central Americans, not just Mexicans, they would say no. Uh, we need that uh, human power uh, to make those industries work. And, People don't like to focus on that, but it's true. So that's reason number one. Uh, reason number two is we have the best graduate schools in the world. So we're educating the best and the brightest. A lot of them are from Asia. They're, uh, they're foreigners. Uh, they're immigrants, if you will. And so when they get their PhD from our glittering institutions, many of them in Massachusetts, uh, we say, okay, bye-bye, back to China. So we're just educating our competition. And if we, you know, had more work visas, made it a little bit easier for those people to stick around and work on our side of the football, I think that would be good as well. I think the hysteria uh, that President Trump has, has built up about immigration and, you know, he says of the Mexicans, they're all murderers and rapists. Well, as someone who's nominated to be ambassador to Mexico and who chose Mexico over the court of St. James in England and uh, New Delhi in India, uh, I don't share that view. Uh, and I think it's all politics. You know, the president has a one-word uh, program for the environment and climate change. Hoax. He has a one-word program for immigration. Wall. Uh, very easy to understand, but they're not even slogans. They're just scare words, uh, and I don't buy it. Massachusetts, former Massachusetts Governor Bill Weld, we thank you for joining thank us you, for conversation with the candidate. Thank you for your time. Thank you to our thank studio you, audience of town hall voters. We appreciate you very much. We're going to have next week Governor John Hickenlooper. Oh, you want to say one Let more thing? Let me say one thing to the audience. You know, I'm, I'm, seldom, I'm seldom nervous when I'm speaking in public, and I'm not now. But I understand you're all undecided voters. So if I was ever going to be nervous, it would be in front of you all. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you so much to the governor. Thanks for joining us for WMUR's The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. If you have a moment and can write a review or subscribe to this podcast, we'd certainly appreciate it. You can also find us on WMUR.com and our free WMUR app 24-7. See you for the next episode of this podcast next week.